Today on the show, we're talking about money mistakes that 20-year-olds make. Welcome back to another episode of Simple Money Solutions Podcast, your path to financial independence through deliberate lifestyle choices. This is episode 36. I'm your host, Courtney, joined alongside with Trevor. And today we're talking about mistakes 20-year-olds make with their money. But before we get into that, a few words from Trevor. Yeah, I, I'd like to thank uh, all the listeners. We've had a real spike in uh, download activity, which is great. Uh, we've also had uh, a few iTunes reviews come in. And I know we at the end of every show, we request uh, iTunes reviews. And, you know, that's the assumption that everyone knows how to actually leave one. And I know I'm a fan of, a, of, of many podcasts, and I leave reviews for those. And I, I know any creator of a podcast greatly appreciates reviews. So I just thought if we just did a quick walkthrough, I've got an iPhone, and you can leave a review right from your phone. So if you go to your podcast app, and you go to the search window, and you type in the podcast, I typed in Simple Money Solutions, and you click on the podcast, and there's three selections there. One's detail, review, and related. If you click on reviews, and there's a, a button at the bottom that says write a review, that's kind of misleading because you don't actually have to write a review to rate a podcast. If you click on write a review, uh, it brings up another screen. you got to type in your password. Then it'll show five stars at the top of the screen. And you just click on the number of stars you want to leave as a rating. You don't actually have to type a long-winded review. And then you click send and done. So it's that easy. And I'd encourage our listeners to, to give a rating to every podcast you listen to. It, it really helps uh, motivate the podcast creator. I really like how you walked through that, Trevor, because I don't know about you, but when I first started listening to podcasts and I wanted to leave reviews, there was a no simple way that I could give stars. And I didn't realize that you could actually just leave stars by clicking right the review. It, so you're right. It is very misleading. Well, and actually, we'll leave something on the website and maybe on our social media with some screen prints of how to actually do that as well. And, of course, to our listeners out there, we're not saying this just because we assume you can't do something very simple. But it is, I don't know, I before the show, I was looking on the actual, I have, an, I have a Mac, so I was looking on the iTunes podcast on my Mac and I had trouble finding it myself. So um, not, not to make you seem incompetent at all to our listeners, but... I, I, just in case that you, if you can't find it or you're having trouble finding it, that will be there for you. I mean, it's not that straightforward. There's nothing when you're listening or playing a podcast. There's nothing there to leave a review. You actually have to go into the iTunes store to do it. So it's definitely not intuitive. No, definitely. So Trevor, we're talking about a topic today that is. It's really. I just find it fascinating because I. I mean, I am in my twenties, but. This episode, I hope that more individuals who are not 20, who are older than 20, will derive value because realistically, everyone knows someone who is younger in their 20s who is are going through these things. And the whole idea of podcast is to recommend podcasts to others so they can derive value from something. So I really hope that if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're not 20, that A, you can stay relate and B, you can share this podcast episode with people who can. Well, and the other thing about this topic is it, the, the article we're featuring, it, it's it's titled 10 Money Mistakes Most 20-somethings Make. And when I read over it myself, I, I'm obviously older than 20, I, I took comfort in knowing I didn't make all of these 10 mistakes. So even if you're not 20 and you're wondering if, uh, you know, if things are, everything's going to work out for you financially in the end, 
uh, you might take some comfort in knowing you, d- you didn't make all these mistakes. So I think there's a takeaway for, for anybody. And on that note, Trevor, I think it is important to highlight that if you're not 20, but if you're 30, 40, 50, 60, and you still find yourself making some of these mistakes, I think that is a big eye opener to see that, wow, I, this is something this article is recommending that I stopped doing when I was 20. So maybe I should just reevaluate what I'm doing now. Absolutely. And and I think most importantly, if you're not 20, but you know somebody who's in their 20s and you see them making these mistakes, uh, help them. Definitely. And again, like Trevor said, this article is called 10 Money Mistakes Most 20-somethings Make. It's by Holly Johnson from thesimpledollar.com. We have read some articles off there in the past. Great website. We'll have this article in the show notes as well. It's a fabulous read. You can check it out there. But we will highlight the the 10 money mistakes that this article cites. So Trevor, I'm just going to go through and list uh, one to 10 down and then we'll just go back through them and uh, talk about the merits of each. So number one, not contributing to retirement right away. Number two, pursuing higher education without a plan. Number three, giving up the student life too fast. Number four, buying new cars and thinking it matters. Number five, voluntarily diving into debt. Number six, not killing those student loans. Number seven, keeping up with the Joneses. Number eight, staying in debt and relationships. Number nine, insisting on big city living you can't afford. And number 10, never learning to budget. So Trevor, before we start in with number one, I just want to say that each of these money mistakes, I feel has been an episode or within an episode that we've talked about in the past. I was thinking the same thing. You know, I think I, I, I was thinking we've, we've done a show on all of these individually but this is very unique in that it's got the 20-year-old perspective only. And with, uh, when we've done a show on, on these topics like uh, toxic relationships, it, it was for any age group. So this is specifically targeted to those in their 20s. Definitely. So, Trevor, I do want to, before we even get into number one, there's this line that says, what if you didn't make those mistakes in the first place? So it's alluding to the idea that Maybe making mistakes are bad, but that goes against everything that I have learned and been taught and that mistakes are healthy and that you should make mistakes. Well, I I think you you need to make mistakes to learn from them. Somebody preaching to you over and over, you know, you know, don't do this or don't do that. Sometimes the, the best lessons in life are learned from real world experience. I do know that you have said in the past that we don't have time. Each individual does not have time to make all the mistakes so that it is useful to learn mistakes and learn from the mistakes other people make. Would you apply that to this situation? I would, but you can't afford to make all 10 of these. So you you, you can afford to make a few of them. And I I know I've made a couple of these mistakes myself. And when we get to them, I'm going to give you a little story, the mistake I made. But I think when when you read these... You can make a degrees of mistakes on all of these. So you may consider what you did uh, was a mistake, but it, not to the degree somebody else did. So there's the magnification of the mistake to consider. Trevor, I'm I'm just in my er- early 20s, and I, I'm going to have to say I haven't made many of these mistakes. Again, just because I am, I'm not that far into my 20s, but... I feel like I haven't made these mistakes out of fear. Well, a lot of these mistakes, uh, when you land that first full-time job, I mean, that's when the, the clock starts ticking. That's when, y- you know, you're, you could go right or wrong, you know. So th- that is the, the focal point. So if, 
if you're still in school and you haven't graduated yet, chances are you haven't had an opportunity to make these mistakes. Definitely. And I guess that is why this article resonates so deeply with me is because I am thankful that I stumbled across this article because it is going to benefit me moving forward. And hopefully, again, all of our other younger listeners and those who know younger listeners. You know, I like to say the, the game of life starts the day you graduate from post-secondary in your case. So the, the game of life will begin at that point. And uh, the mistakes you make from that point forward become have a real-world uh, lasting effects. Definitely. I mean, the article in the first paragraph, it says you still have time. You can make mistakes. But you're right. Those mistakes start happening the second that you reach the quote-unquote real world. So, Trevor, let's delve into number one, not contributing to retirement right away. So I, I'm going to ask a few questions right off the bat. When did you start contributing to your retirement plan? And when would you say it's too late? Well, it's absolutely never too late. But I was late to the game on contributing to retirement. Uh, and uh, nobody sort of said it was important to me. I, I didn't have that somebody saying, you know, you need to do this now. In fact, w- when I got my first time, first job, the housing market in Canada was just insane. And everyone said, you know, save your money up and buy a house. That was priority one. Get in that housing market before you can't afford to. So that that was the advice being screamed at me by everybody who I, I thought knew anything. I, I just, I'm going to sidetrack us for a few minutes, but I just want to go back to uh, buying a house. And I do want to highlight in the very first paragraph of this article, it says that, quote, many people reach several life milestones in their 20s, graduating from college, buying their first home, getting married or starting a family, end quote. I want to highlight how I perceive this as very stereotypical and almost mentality we need to get away from in that you don't need to buy your first home so soon. You don't need to get married. You don't need to have kids. You don't need to buy that first car. Well, some of the stuff, the, the clock is ticking, right? You need, if you're going to have a family, waiting till you're in your late 40s is, is, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, but it will certainly impact the age at which you can retire. But Trevor, so, but Trevor, wouldn't you say that adding these pressures onto a 20-year-old is just going to make them tumble into debt that they maybe aren't ready for? Well, none of these things have to be uh, beyond your financial means. You don't have to buy a McMansion and you don't have to have a, a uh, 500 person elaborate wedding. I mean, all these things can be done uh, within your financial means. No, definitely. I, I have to agree. I definitely agree with that. That's a great point. Um, so Trevor, let's go back to you not feeling that you saved for retirement early enough. At what age did you actually start giving it serious thought? Uh, I was, I, I would say it was in my early thirties, sort of early to mid thirties. So, so I probably lost 10 years of, of, contribution uh, options, I, I've caught up. I, I, th- I feel I've caught up. But once you take that, that regression in disposable income, meaning you've, you've uh, automatically had a portion of your income go into retirement savings, once that automation is in place, and you, when you think of your gross to net income, you're already disregarding that part that's going into retirement. Once you've made that painful transition of doing without that extra money, it gets real easy after that. What age do you think that 20-year-olds should start, like right with their first job? Oh, yeah. As soon as you as soon as soon you get that first paycheck, you get that automatic deposit into a retirement savings account. So you don't even see it. You don't even know it's there. And you'll never miss it. 
It starts with that first paycheck. That's that's a great that's a great sentiment. But I do want to be our voice of our listeners right now and say that Trevor retirement is eons away. I am still so young. This is my first job. Let me live. What are you going to say to that? You know, if if you think you can't afford to do it now, wait till you have a house, a kids, a mortgage, car payments, then you really won't be able to afford to do it. So you're when you're first starting out in your 20s, your income's really small, but hopefully so are your expenses. So it's all relative. No, I, I love that because, in like you said, if you put that money aside right from your first paycheck, you're not going to miss it. So it, it becomes your new normal. Exactly, yeah. Um, so Trevor, I do, I'm there. It, I'm going to say this sounds like a little bit of an excuse, but I think it's also reality in that many in this article, it cites that many of the reasons that young 20 year olds are not saving for retirement right in their twenties is because they're still unemployed and they're maybe carrying around too much student loan debt and they barely have enough money to live, let alone save for retirement. It, it's always recommended you save a percentage of your income. So it doesn't matter how much you make, you know, 10 or 15% of your income is, is it, it might be less, but it's still the same percent. So it would be the same pain for everybody. I like the direction you're going with this. So I'm just going to reiterate what you said. So you're saying that regardless of how much you make, you can always put money aside. Well, I mean, okay. So if, if you're living at the poverty line and you're, you're struggling to put food on the table, obviously retirement savings is not a priority. So I, I'm not suggesting for a minute that this is an option for everybody, but I, I think the, the average Canadian, this is probably doable. So saying that, oh, I don't make enough, if if you have a nice salary coming in or income is a little bit more of an excuse and putting off something that really shouldn't be put off. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I, I'm good with that. I want to move on to number two now. And this one I'm going to put up a fight with because... And I'm sure a lot of our listeners will too, but number two is pursuing higher education without a plan. Now, I am such a proponent, I know you are too, Trevor, of higher level education, whether it's college or university, and I'm going to put my foot down and say that any 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 education is always positive as it it allows you to face adversity and it, it really sophisticates you. What's, what's your take on this, Trevor? Well, education will absolutely prepare you for the the world better than not having it. So I'm a fan of education, higher education. Our society as a whole will benefit from everybody getting a higher education. The thing is, you need to go into it with your eyes open. If you go into getting pursuing higher education, like a master's degree, and you incur all the costs that go along with getting that education, and you, you have no plan to get a job that will help you extinguish that debt, then that, that's where the problem, I mean, this article is suggesting that's where the problem begins to surface. So Trevor, before we started recording this episode, you were saying that you really view education as the ticket or the admit price of admission for that interview. Well, it kind of is because, you know, when you when you graduate from a, a post-secondary degree, you're, a lot of times you're getting entry-level jobs that you're not really utilizing a lot of the education you, you've, uh, you've got in school. But what you've demonstrated is an ability to learn. And so when you get into a new job, there's going to be lots of learning. So I, I think a lot of times a degree is the admission to most job interviews. So I'm not saying higher education is not, not required. But I, I have an expression. Pick whatever field you want to go into, whatever education you want to get. But be willing to accept the lifestyle that that income is going to deliver from that education. 
No, that's a fabulous point. I I just think that you don't like always you can't ju- you can, you can't just do math on education. No, no, and that's exactly and, and, and call it a return investment. Some people want to get higher education so they can do something they're very passionate about. But they might not make much money doing it, but they're so passionate about it that and they need this education to do it. That that that's okay too. But just be willing to accept that 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 it's going to take you if if that education and that passionate job you get doesn't deliver a, a huge income it's going to take you a long time to pay off that debt to me that doesn't count as is one of the mistakes a 20 something would make that that's a conscious decision but like this number two says go into it with a plan but but that's why i want to go back to the whole idea of just having that degree in your hand you don't even maybe if, if you enter university or college without an actual plan, at least you can leave university and college with this diploma that will allow you to achieve, achieve a, a job that provides a level of income that, that, that you're willing to accept. But without that education, well, you, I mean, I, so I don't know. I'm going to say you don't need to go into college or university with a definite plan. That's, that's my end opinion. I think. Well, there's no shortage of, and I'm not judging, but there's no shortage of people who have a university degree you know, working as baristas in coffee shops. I mean, and if they're happy with that, I'm happy too. But there's, you know, they're going to be a long time paying off their student debts with that income. So I, I think you need a plan of some kind. I mean, if you just wanted to work a, a, a job that required no education, those jobs exist. Definitely. No, I, I do agree with you. You have to, but I am going to defend our 20-somethings out there listening that, you and I both know getting that first job is very, very, very tough. So, I mean, if you're working a, a a job that doesn't require education just to make ends meet, I think that's fine. But I do think if you plan to get a degree, you have to use it responsibly and have the motivation to achieve what that degree is desired to achieve. Well, I know. So when I graduated and I got, I worked in an interim position in an office in the accounting department and it was in a factory, and this this was the front office of the factory, and I made substantially less than the people working in the factory with no education. I made, I'm going to say, maybe half as much as those people made, but I knew that if I stuck this out and got my experience and paid my dues, that it would pay off in the end, and you know what? It did. Definitely. No, I, I have to agree with that. Uh, I feel like we're veering off track, but I do want to say one last thing about this in that they this article stuck pursuing degrees such as library science english history and political science under number two of pursuing higher education without a plan so i I just want to go over this a little bit trevor in that i how important do you think it is to pursue something that you're passionate about and that will your passion for that ensure that you are not ensure but maybe maybe you'll find a job out of it because you are passionate about it if you pursue something you're passionate about, chances are you're going to be really good at it. And if you're really good at something, chances are the money's going to find you, meaning you're going to make money doing something you're really passionate about. If you just accept uh, a line of work that you you can tolerate, you'll probably you know be giving a, a 50% effort most of the time and you'll be paid accordingly. You know You won't be a standout in your field where if you're passionate, and you pursue that, I'm not saying it's going to work out for everybody, but I like your chances. And that relates exactly back to the whole the whole reason these degrees are were in here was just to talk about the return on investment and how 
library science, English, history, and political science are considered the the worst degrees for return on investment, whereas engineering and in science are considered more high return on investment. So, I, I just do you know p- you know one thing one thing about those. Uh, so this uh, I'll say that you know we're a Canadian personal finance podcast, and this was written from an American perspective. A school teacher in Canada does quite well, and you know a lot of these degrees would cater to a uh, you know somebody a, a, a teacher in our public school system. So th- those may not apply to us in Canada. No, that that is a really true point. I I just want to highlight that, like you said, if you're very passionate about something, I don't think you should pick a degree in university. Head into you shouldn't head into university or college picking the career path that will make you the most money because you're not going to be happy with that choice. Well, well, and you know, again, I don't want to get off topic, but we are. <laughs> uh, what else is new? Uh, um, you know, I, I'm in, fi- I work in corporate finance and that wasn't my, uh, that isn't my, what I graduated school with. I just discovered that, that I found that very interesting once I got in the work world and my education kind of overlapped it a bit and I was able to pursue an accounting designation and, and get a, a job in that field and I, I've been in that for, I don't know, 30 years, maybe 25. So I went in with a plan, I came out with a different plan. But I, I had a plan going in. I bet the key is to have a plan of some kind. True, because a plan can be almost synonymous with motivation and determination and drive, which is so important in able for uh, allow anyone to succeed well in post-secondary. Okay, Trevor, before we get any more sidetracked, let's move on to number three, giving up the student life's too fast. I this this I start this point within this article when I read it earlier because it is my favorite point within this article because we have talked about this on the show this point and as a student myself, I'm, I I identify with this so strongly. What's your intentions when you graduate? How, what kind of lifestyle are you going to adopt? Excellent question, and I have really thought about this one long and hard. And I am making—I have made right now, to date, deliberate choices within my life to ensure that I can keep living the life I have as a student. So, an example: I live in a—I go to school in a large city where the, they have exceptional public transit, and I'm going to utilize that for as long as I can. I—I I don't see a future in date where I am going to buy a car. I know it's inevitable, but and then also we have um, in Canada via rail. I'm sure every all our listeners have traveled on that, but that is the perfect transportation tool to get me home to see my parents on on Christmas breaks and stuff like that. So, I I continue as a working adult. I continue to I'm going to continue to live as a student, and I don't see why not. And I and Trevor, it helps too because I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a working adult, and I'm gonna be taking school part time in the evenings. But I'm gonna be living with my two best friends who are going to be in their master's programs. So they'll be living as a student So for the next two years. So it's going to be easy for me to continue yeah, that, living as a student. Gonna be, that's going to be a, a very easy adjustment. I think once you 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 know, you know move away from the student lifestyle in, into what I'll call traditional adult lifestyle, where you have a car and, a, and it may be a more upscale uh, housing accommodations, it's hard to go back. In fact, it could might be impossible to regress. You, you know, it, not saying it can't be done, but that transition becomes very difficult. So holding on to that student life as long as you can. You know, I, I remember reading an article and it said the best way to escape the middle class rat race is to live a lower class lifestyle. And n- not forever, but for a short period of time. 
And there's a there's a guy we've talked about on the show before. Is Mr. Money Mustache? He's got a website. Everyone should read his stuff. It's it's fabulous. We'll link him in the show notes. But he him and his wife they retired by the age of thirty. And the way they did that is they lived extremely frugal. And I mean, if you listen to him, he's going to say he, he didn't. But he, he lived off twenty five thousand dollars a year. He rode his bike to work. That's frugal. Yeah, so so he did, and he but he doesn't call them sacrifices. He he was okay living that way, but he obviously did not live an upscale lifestyle. But he had an upscale income. So the best way to escape the 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 the, the, the social class you're in right now is to live the life of the class below you. Definitely, and but I feel like that idea is hard to accept when you're just you've lived. We've talked about this before on this podcast. We definitely have. But how you live four years as a poverty-stricken student at post-secondary, and then all of a sudden you want a taste of something a little bit better. So you jump at the opportunity to spend more money and therefore accumulate debt. So, Well, I think you've got it figured out. You're, you're going to continue to live with students. Well, what, what a better way to, to continue to live that lifestyle. Oh, definitely. Is to, 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 to stay with students. But I do want to highlight that, I mean, yes, it's going to be a lot easier for me, but that doesn't mean that our listeners who are in a similar position as me, leaving post-secondary, entering the adult working world, sorry, I just make that sound like it's a special achievement, but entering the adult working world where you have adult responsibilities, I don't think anything needs to change, but I think the key is not feeling deprived. Because like we, we there's another point in this article about keeping up the Joneses. We'll get into that when we arrive at that no, that point. But I, Trevor, I think it's just a mix between what are my peers doing after they after they graduate and what should I be doing slash what are my actual um, innermost values and desires. You know the the best way to feel not, not to feel not deprived is to practice gratitude and be grateful for things that you do have. So, I mean. That's that's easy to say, but it's something you need to, you know, that you work at in practice. Trevor, we're going to move on to number four, but and we haven't even finished all 10 yet. But would you say that I, I you know, I, I, I forgot what I was going to do is I was going to talk about, you know, mistakes I made and we kind of got off track. Oh, there. yeah. So, let me ask you a question. Uh, I do have a question for so number three. I did, Can I? I'll, so number two. OK, wait. so number two, I, I did go into education with a plan. So. Okay, so number three, thanks for uh, reminding me. My number three question for you was, um, we talked about in past episodes, but you went to school and lived with your parents at the same time. Do you think that maybe hindered your ability to really delve in and live the student life to the fullest? So therefore, when you were done school, you kind of jumped, there There was less of a, there was a kind of a slight transition to living a more quote unquote adult life. If not for my wife, who did live a very, student-like lifestyle I, I lived at home and then I left and moved in with my wife I, I never did have the student lifestyle experience my working life started out in what I would call a student lifestyle I didn't have to make that transition I made it when I got my first full-time job do you think there's an advantage because I obviously went straight into the student life after graduating uh, high school but do you think there's an advantage would you say to living that student life a little bit earlier, or do you feel that you didn't have any real disadvantage? No, I I, I had a disadvantage. I think the sooner you can live that, the the younger age, the younger the age. So when you leave home and you you go off to live on residence, you're getting sort of some freedom in exchange for a some of the sacrifices you're making. So it feels like a win, right? And then you move off campus and you live in uh, rent an apartment or a house with your friends. You're granted some more freedom, so it feels like another win. 
you're still young enough to to refer to those things as wins, as as freedom wins. But the, as you get older, you start you start to take the freedom for granted, and then that's when you feel deprived. And and like and like we always say, it just becomes your new normal living with other people who are in the same shoes as you. Okay, number four, um, Trevor, you, I know you have a lot to say about this one, but it's buying new cars and thinking it matters. So this article says the average car is around $30,000. And the, I, I agree with that number. That That's pr- probably pretty accurate. And the average car payment's around $500 a month. That's That kind of sounds reasonable. I, I'm a fan of, of buying a used car. Like, look what you're going to do. You're going to take public transit. And I, I think... This sounds crazy, but I think everyone should see. Once you buy a new car, then if your your next car has to be new, it's, it's hard to go back and buy a used one. Have you have you done that? Have you bought a new car and then gone well, back to a used? So, so I, this is a mistake I've made. I, my first car was brand new, and I went and bought a brand new car. Incurred all that uh, depreciation cost that every new car car buyer incurs. And then uh, I had a family and a, a new car obviously wasn't an option. You know, you, you get more expenses. So I bought a used car. And let me tell you, that was a, a real kick in the pants. Like, I mean, I felt like I've, you know, I, I, you should be excited whenever you get a new car. And I, I was anything but. And that's, that's the sad reality of it because it's such an investment that it's kind of, you, I feel like you walk with buyer's remorse almost. Well, I think every, everybody should their first car should be a used car for just the reason I said. And, you know, you should save up and buy, pay cash for it. I mean, okay, so if you get a job that requires you to drive, then you can't pay cash. But your car loan should be no more than three years long. So if you do have to borrow money for a car, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm saying most people probably do, three years max. So whatever payment you can afford spread over three years. And I am going to be the voice of the listener right now and say that be, because I am making the sacrifices, I mean, I am in a beautiful city, so I, it's not any real sacrifice, but because I am making the decision to live in a city where I ha- there is incredible transportation, I think, like, we, Trevor, we have listeners out there I know who maybe live in a smaller town and do not have access to public transpa- transportation in the way that I do, but... I think it's really, I mean, I, I grew up in a town, a small town like that where public transportation was, I mean, no one took it. And if you did, you're like, what happened to your car? Like it was that kind of mentality. So I've seen both sides and I really think I'm such a strong component of, of public transportation that I don't know about you, Trevor, but I'm going to say that it might even be worth moving to an up, moving to a large city or a place with awesome public transportation just so you don't have to buy a car. Well, you know, I agree with that 100%. And as somebody who's young and unattached and ready to school, is that is the most mobile you'll ever be in your life. So in terms of picking a place to, to work and, and set up a life, you'll never have a, a more more options available to you at that moment in time. So why not pick a place where it, you you can take public transit and you don't need a car? Definitely. And and the it's kind of a vicious cycle too, Trevor. If you really think about it, you need a you need a car to get to a job, but you can't buy the car unless you have a job. So it's it's a chicken and egg scenario where it doesn't make you feel good at the end of the day. Well, and you know that so a lot of people they they'll get that first job. So here's what I did: I I got my first job, I got a brand new car, and then all of a sudden I decided I don't really like this job. 
Well, then every job I looked for after that had to cover, at least cover that car payment, or I had to take the, that car payment into consideration when I was looking at other job opportunities. So no longer was I looking for a great place to work or uh, a great career path. I, I needed income to cover that car payment. So I, I limited my options just by making that decision. Definitely. And like we always say, when you add responsibility, it adds stress and that stress stresses you out. So at the end of the day, it's not worth it. And just to give you an idea, my uh, a month long pass for the, the the city I'm in, it just, it costs a hundred dollars. So it really, and, and you could be saying, oh, that could be a hundred dollars I'm putting towards paying for a car. But I, I think if you really weigh out all the pros and cons of taking public transportation, it's a, there's a clear winner. Well, in a big city, you've also got parking considerations. I mean, $100 gets gobbled up in a hurry in car expenses, car-related expenses like parking, gas, insurance. Definitely. Oh, for sure. So, Trevor, let's move on to number five, voluntarily diving into debt. This this, this number five sounds crazy just the way it's phrased, but wh- what's your take on it? So I'm going to say guilty on this one too. So, you know, this – and I think they're, they're kind of referring to consumer debt, meaning uh, – you know, it's not for a house, it's not for a car, it's just for stuff. Guilty as charged on this one. I I, I fell into that trap. And I, I will say my wife was, you know, resisting all the way along. So I, I was kind of blinded by, you know, all the things I didn't have. I wasn't practicing gratitude. I was just seeing all the things you say my friends had or, or worse, I was looking at the generation ahead of me and seeing what they had and wishing I had it, the car payment, you, you could always sell the car, right? But voluntary debt, generally, you can't undo that. My next question, it, it combines the question I forgot to ask when we were at number four. Well, you know, and I, I, want, I want to say one more thing on this. So this is this is one of these ones where you have to assess the, the severity of the, you know, committing this, this error. And so I know people that, you know, went way deeper into debt that, you know, I, I was probably more on the fringe of, you know, a bit of credit card debt. But uh, I knew people that were in, you know, up to their neck. Trevor, I'm going to I'm gonna argue that on that point and say that it's not realistic to play the comparative game with your friends about how, oh, I'm in less debt than, than my friend. It's, it's obviously it is a little bit of awakening saying it could be worse. But I'm just for our listeners out there, I, I don't try to compare yourself to what you're, to how better off or worse off than you are with your friends because, it, that's not really a good comparative point. It's more about well, you and it, yourself. It, yeah. Well, it, it so there's a big difference between being $30,000 in consumer debt and $2,000 consumer debt. But what you've done is if you're okay with consumer debt, you've probably developed a bad habit. Oh, yes. Yes. I have to. I agree with you there. I'm going to ask my next question. I'm spinning. I'm going to spend point number four and point number five together in talking about your motivations to both think that because number four was buy new cars and thinking it matters. And then number five was voluntarily diving into debt. So Trevor, I would do want to spin. I I forgot to ask this question. We were up in with number four, but buying new cars and thinking that matters. So I'm going to spin it into our voluntarily diving into debt. And that is who did it matter to at that moment when you bought that new car? And maybe when you acquired consumer debt, was it, was it the pressures of marketing and corporations or was it your, your inner values that were maybe not as in, in line as they are today? We said this in the last show, you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with. And I happen to be in a circle of friends who all had brand new cars. 
So I was a victim of peer pressure, I guess. And you'd say the, that extends to uh, voluntarily diving into debt with consumer consumption as well? So when I got my first apartment, my grandmother loaned me a uh, bright orange floral patterned couch and chair for my living room. We should get a photo of that up on our uh, website. I sat on that probably for three three months, maybe six months. And then I just decided, you know, I, I, I can't do this. You know, we just, I say me and my wife decided, you know, we should uh, probably get some new furniture and Looking back, it was probably not a not a wise choice. So again, it was probably driven out of peer pressure. So we've talked a lot about how your wife has really kept you grounded. Has she been swayed by your past actions to want to voluntarily dive into debt? For example, the couch. I've been accused of being somebody who can be persuasive. And so I, I may have used some persuasive tactics to to make it sound like a really good idea. But I mean, in your defense, you probably thought it was. So, I mean, you weren't being dis, dis, deceitful at, sh- at all, Oh, I'm no, sure. no, absolutely not. No, I, I obviously, I, it, it didn't take a lot of persuasion to say, hey, this orange floral pattern <laughs> couch has to go. No, I, <laughs> was- I imagine. Okay, Trevor, let's move on to number six, not killing those student loans. This is something that continually comes up when we talk about the idea of post-secondary education. Um, we, we've, ha- we've talked about it numerous times in the past, but I, I don't know. I just don't know where to start with this one in that it's, it's inevitable, I feel like. And I just think that students need to really focus, make this a priority, I guess. That, that would be my main, my main uh, words for that. Well, you know, if you don't think you can afford to pay off these student debts when you're in your 20s, you wait till you're in your 30s and you have kids, a mortgage, and a car payment, and all that stuff, it'll be even more of a challenge. And interest starts to build on those loans. And the further you move away from your education, you know, from your graduating date that you have those loans, the the less meaningful that, that debt becomes. Like, I mean, it, it, it becomes more of a boat anchor and less of an investment uh, the more the time passes. And I would even say it's taken not less seriously because debt is debt, but... like you said it's all perspective you have bigger priorities and that just takes the back burner well then you don't have any sort of tangible thing to uh, associate with that debt like you would a house or a car right so it's it's a little hard to digest from that perspective but it i mean there is a real uh return on investment for a lot of graduates so i mean you know you should look at this great income you're getting and, and say you know, one way to look at it is saying, you know, if I if I were making, if I didn't have this education, I wouldn't have this debt. I'd probably be working a minimum wage job. So the difference between minimum wage and what you're currently making, put that towards your debt. Oh, for sure. Definitely. Can't argue with that one. Moving on to number seven, keeping up the Joneses. I'm just going to lead in with a quote. Quote, many of your Joneses can't afford their lifestyle, but it won't become obvious until they've been doing it for a while. End quote. Trevor, how much does this resonate with you? Well, in the last show, I, I used the quote, time is a great equalizer. And in this case, you know, you can only live an uns- financially unsustainable lifestyle for so long before the bills all come due and you become exposed for living beyond your means. So I- keeping up with the Joneses is, is I mean, it's the, the worst motivation for I- any spending patterns, but it... it in a lot of cases, you're trying to keep up with somebody's lifestyle whose their lifestyle is actually financially unsustainable. 
definitely. And I really like how this uh, this quote is is phrased by Holly Johnson, and that in it's it's all this one big game of impressing the next person and pretending you're living this life that says that you perceive society wants you to live in that the the joneses the people you admire for living this luxurious life can't even afford it themselves so really if we all took a step back we'd all be living frugal lives the game of life is not won by the person with the most things at the end it's the person who lived the most fulfilled happiest life so keeping up with the joneses is generally an emotion of envy that drives it and that's that's not a healthy emotion to to live by no not at all and Trevor, because you've had a had more time to become more content with how you live your life and how you spend money, and then you're able to look around at your peers, do you have any friends you were close with back when you were maybe in your early 20s and you're still in contact with today, or you see them via uh, via social media? And is that is that coming true? This sentiment about it only comes obvious when they've been doing it for a while. Well, I, d- I don't really use social media, so I, I, I haven't really kept up with with uh, friends I don't physically personally know. But I do I do have some friends I, that I, st- I still connect with physically or personally. And uh, the ones I happen to stay in touch with, are, they're, they're similar personality to me, and they, they, they weren't living an upscale lifestyle, so th- I, I wasn't trying to keep up with them. We were kind of s- seeing uh, things eye to eye, so... Th- I. So no, I haven't experienced that. But you know, one of the the pressures I felt as a young twenty something was, and this was in my head; it wasn't in reality. Was the the judgment of my parents? You know, thinking, you know, where I should be in life at a certain age, and the the things I should have acquired. And I, I, a lot of times, I would buy things because I I, th- I thought that's what somebody that age should do. You know, not not that I necessarily needed it. And looking back, I, I probably didn't even really want it. But I, I felt sort of to prove that I'm an adult or I, I you know, I'm I, I'm at the right place in my life. I should have this whatever. And I'm going to say one of the things was a, a, a camper trailer. You know, I, I thought that's something that my parents did at a certain age. And I thought, well, I, you know, if I don't produce the same thing, really, am I living up to to those standards. I I couldn't have said that better. I really uh, agree with that and that I but, you know in, in reality most people I guarantee your parents aren't judging you. You know they're they're on your team. They're they're rooting for you. They're rarely judging you. That's what I was just going to say. I, I definitely I agree with that in that we can perceive it to our parents to f- that they feel about us in a certain way, but it's usually like you just said the total opposite. Um, moving on to number eight, Trevor, we have staying in dead end relationships. This rings so clear of our previous episode we did a while ago on toxic relationships. And I just want to I want to start off by saying that uh, having this personal finance podcast and being acutely aware of personal finance and the impacts of making smart and less smart decisions in your early 20s is something that a lot of my peers not a lot of my peers, but you know, most peers aren't actively involved in, I mean, I'm immersed in personal finance. Thanks to this podcast. I'm very thankful for that. But because of this podcast and my young age, I'm so aware of, of everything that I do with, within the personal finance realm. And I think, and all our listeners who are listening to this, I'm sure you can empathize with that and say that 
wow, I'm passionate about personal finance. I'm interested. Let me share my knowledge with other people and help them. But like, like number eight says, that's not a really healthy mentality. This is an important one. I've read this in many places. The three things that break up marriages are infidelity, substance abuse, and money. Those two are pretty big in any relationship. Throw money in. I mean, that's if that that's one of the three leading causes of, of divorces in, in, in marriage breakups. You know, that really puts it in perspective for me. But I guess I just really want to hammer home the point point that if we do have any young listeners or you are an older listener and know someone who is in 20 something and and maybe you're having trouble finding someone in your early 20s who views money in the same way that you you do. Do not settle for someone who who you think you can change or or you think you can help or because sooner sooner or later we are all forced to have to think about personal finance in the way that you might be thinking about it. Well, I think you hit it right there. Is don't go into a relationship thinking you can change somebody. Because I've seen a lot of relationships. I know couples where one one is a great big you know is a is a irresponsible spender and one is a is a diligent saver, and they're both fairly unhappy because of it. So don't don't think you can go in. I'm not saying people can't change, but I wouldn't go into a relationship thinking I can change this person. Definitely. So I would say the moral moral number eight is that just stay true to who you are. Know what your personal finance values are. And sooner or later, you will meet a like-minded person who really resonates with how you feel about personal finance. Um, Trevor, let's move on to number nine, insisting on big city living you can't afford. So this kind of contradicts what I was saying about busing, but I still busing in public transportation, but I still, I still hold true to that because I think you can make smart living accommodation choices, even in a city. Well, like I had said earlier, you're never going to be more mobile in terms of picking a place to live than in your twenties or when you first graduate school. So you, the, you, you know, you have uh, more options than you'll ever have. Now, uh, this is something that happened to me, not in my 20s, but in my 30s, is me, we lived in, me and my wife, we lived in the city, and we found out we were having twins. And, w- you know, we did the math on, you know, how much Eva just made and how much our bills were. And we, so we needed two incomes to stay living in the city. But the cost of daycare w- was so much that the, the math just didn't work. So we ended up moving to a small town to make the math work. So you can design any life in any place you want. So you're not, just because you grew up there doesn't mean you're stuck there. So Trevor, I really like that point because you you and your wife looked at your circumstances and realized that you couldn't continue living in a big city because of what life had presented you with. So you did make the changes. But how many people, I wonder, are living in Toronto or Vancouver and in making, uh, you know, in those cities a relatively low wage, and the 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 cost of living is astronomical. You know, would would they not do better in a in a smaller town or a smaller city? Oh, for sure, definitely, definitely. But I do. Now, I, I I know there's less there, there's less job opportunities in smaller towns and cities, but you have to remember there's less qualified people there as well. So, f- for instance, the town I live in. I, I'm an accountant. If an accounting job comes up in this town, they only one or two ever come up every year that I've ever seen. I guarantee you, 
I'm one of the top three most qualified candidates for that job in this town at any given time. There's only so many accountants who are either live in this town or are willing to live in this town. No, great point. But I do want to preface that with saying that that you can live a very frugal life in a big city. This article quotes $13 martinis. Yes, if you're consuming $13 martinis every every Friday night, it, that's going to run your pocketbook pretty thin, pretty fast. So I th- I just think you can you can go about living in a big city in a very uh, frugal economic way. No, I would agree. It can be done, and, and people do it every day. It it and I'm not saying it's a bad choice, but there's options. You, you if 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 you're just breaking even, you know, you're not saving any money. You're you're not getting ahead in life living in a big city. Take a look at a smaller city or a small town. Definitely, and I would say, as like everything personal finance. Weigh the pros, weigh the cons. Don't be an extremist, and really, really understand how you can live that frugal life in a city. Versus going back to the transportation issue, just 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 be very, very moderate and and really critical about where you're living. So, Trevor, last but not least, number ten, never learning to budget. And I just want to say that the idea of budgeting, I mean. We have a personal finance podcast and the idea of a budget still still makes me a little queasy inside because do people ever truly master budgeting? Because as an well, early 20-something-year-old, I, I kind of can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Well, so budgeting is it has a negative connotation, kind of like the word dieting. I like to think of it as financial planning. You know, you're kind of, you're kind of planning where you're going to spend. And the first step to budgeting, as we'll call it, is knowing where your money's currently going. And once you know where you're spending your money, where it's, where it's all going, is it going to rent, food, transportation, clothing? You know, you categorize it, maybe broad categories, and then you slowly refine it and you, you sort of get more specific in your spending categories. Once you have, say, s- three to six months of spending history itemized like that, then at that point you can start planning how much you want to spend in those categories in the future. And in doing that, you can see, okay, if I, if I do this, I'll have this much money left over to help toward my financial goals. So it's a process. It's not something you just turn the switch on. It's something that I, I believe evolves. But you, if you never look at where your money's going currently, you'll never be able to direct your money where you want it to go in the future to achieve your financial goals. Absolutely well said. And there is a necessity for budgeting and it, it, it sounds scary, like, like you said, Trevor, but I, I definitely think as, as scary and as intimidating it sounds, it is needed in order to really set the foundation for your finance, personal finances moving forward. Like, I don't, I don't want to say it's easy. In fact, we should probably, I've been meaning to do a YouTube thing on, on, on uh, an Excel spreadsheet I've developed in, for budgeting. It might be useful to just see not not necessarily how the spreadsheet works, but just the thought process behind it. But I, I think there's so many, you know, smartphone apps for tracking your personal finances. It, there, there's so many tools available with, with online banking that it, it, it's really, the options are limitless and the there isn't a whole lot of excuses not to do it. Definitely. And I was going to say that I think the topic of budgeting could really be one that we could we, we could delve more into on this podcast uh, in different avenues because for all our 20 somethings out there and maybe 30 or 40 who still 
still would like a helping hand with the budgeting aspect. I think that'd be of such great value to our listeners. Trevor, in the very last sentence of this article, and it says, quote, once you're 20 something, you're on your own, end quote. And I really don't like this at all. Well, I don't think that's true. I mean, everybody has a family behind them. Nobody's, nobody's going it alone. Like, so I have a family and, uh, you know, I'm there for them and yeah, I have parents and they're there for me. You know, you're not on your own, but if you make irresponsible decisions and, and you blaze a trail of financial disaster, you, you can't expect somebody to come behind you and clean all that up. So I think that's really the, the message there. Yes. Yes. That, that makes a lot of, lot more sense because I do, I want to, I highlighted that only because I want to really enforce the idea that make, make mistakes, but within reason, but realize that financial mistakes are financial mistakes. So so if you have the, uh, if you go and make all 10 of these financial mistakes, uh, repeatedly, then I I probably say yeah you probably are twenty something and on your own because there's not going to be a lot of people that had a lot of sympathy if you've made all these mistakes. Definitely yes I I completely agree with that. So Trevor those were our ten money mistakes most twenty somethings make by Holly Johnson from the Simple Dollar dot com. Before we end this episode let's go into our April challenge. So we uh, we had our we had. February as frugality February we had March as burn your mortgage March and if you haven't checked out the website or social media we have posted the winner of that book giveaway where we sponsored sponsored with Sean Cooper for his new book burn your mortgage giveaway so the winner of that is on up on our website but with April we are introducing take action April so Take Action April is really about setting goals, setting achievable goals, because goals can be really scary and intimidating. And and generally, goals are supposed to be huge, these long, even lifelong aspirations that you're just trying to achieve. So goals can be very intimidating. So with Take Action April, our the goal, the goal of Take Action April is to create action items. And we're going to, so you're going to set a goal and this goal can be it can be one for the year it can be one for the next five years it can be one for the month whatever you want your goal to be large small medium sized whatever it is set your goal that's important to you then you're going to set three action items so what are three realistic attainable things that you can do and implement that can help you achieve that goal and you're going to focus on those action items and really and really like we were talking about in previous episodes put all of your efforts into achieving this goal by taking the actions that will allow you to achieve your goal. So for all the details on that, we're April 3rd today. So we are three days in, but we have had the all the instructions about Take Action April up on our website under the challenges and contest giveaways. Trevor, what book are we giving away to the lucky winner who will be able to win this book by emailing, emailing us their goal, not even their action items, just their goal by the end of April? So the book I'm reading right now, and it kind of relates to this, it's called The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And he has a few books out, and I, I've not read any of his yet, but I, I've started reading this one, and it's kind of based on the Stoics. I, I've just started the book, but I think it really, The Obstacle is the Way kind of, you know, when you're setting goals and action items, I think it, it's a good fit for 
for this uh, challenge. So that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. Make sure you check out our show notes. We'll have the article we featured today. Check out livelifesimple.ca where we'll have all of Take Action April rules and and how you can enter our contest giveaway for that book as well as how you can get started with Take Action April. Up on our website, we'll, we have this PDF downloadable eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper that you can write your goals onto. Of course you can write your goals in action items anywhere, but if you need a little bit of extra inspiration, we have created a takeaway for you that you can uh, fill out. And later this month, we'll be actually sharing our goals with you in our action items. So uh, look forward to that. And also when you email us your goals, we would love to dedicate episodes to talking through these goals with you via simple, Simple Money Solutions and really working with you to achieve goals because goals are behavior. And again, like we always say on the show, we are about making behavioral changes to achieve personal finance and financial freedom. So on that note, that is it. We will see you next week with episode 37. Thanks for tuning in. And until next week, keep it simple. Simple.